0: Okay. Amen. I'm going to let you guys have a seat. I'm going to let our kids head downstairs for Children's Church. While they're heading downstairs, if you have a cell phone, go ahead and flip that thing on vibrate or silent. Okay. Um, While they're doing that, we do have a very brief congregational meeting right after this service. So it's after this service and before the 11 o'clock service. So if you're a member of True Vine, please stick around. This meeting should only take 10 or 15 minutes. We've got to get it done before the next service. So it'll be quick. And uh, one more thing, this is kind of an invitation that I wanna give to you. Uh, If you've been paying attention for the last two years, you'll know that our church's vision statement is to make disciples that sustain revival. It's right there on the wall. Uh, One of the ways that we plan to make disciples that sustain revival is by developing leaders that sustain revival in their own personal lives, as well as in the areas of uh, leadership that they've been given. So, starting in January, Our church is going to be launching a more formal leadership development program. Every leader we've developed in our church has been kind of accidental or organic. It's just kind of been like, well, you know, why don't you do this thing? And then we find out whether they have gifts of leadership or not. We're going to continue to accidentally develop leaders, but we're also going to begin to intentionally develop leaders through this leadership development program. If you're interested in growing in your leadership gifts and skills, this would be a good thing for you to be a part of. Uh, This is going to be essentially a year-long commitment. I mean, it's really only 10 months. You get a month off in the summer and a month off at the end of the year, but it's gonna be 10 months of studying and developing and putting into practice leadership principles. So what we're gonna do in this program, this is not a class, by the way, that you need to show up to every week. Most of this you're gonna do at home, when you have time. But we're going to read about leadership. We're going to listen to videos and sermons about leadership. We're going to lead, actually get our hands dirty and lead events and ministries and teams. And uh, you're going to sit down with either myself or one of our other leaders in our church a couple times during that year and we're gonna talk about what is your calling? What are your gifts? What are your passions? What areas of character need to be developed so that your leadership skills aren't uh, undermined or hampered. And hopefully by the end of that year, you feel more equipped and confident in your ability to lead and you're actually serving in some type of leadership. So if that's something that interests you, please speak to me. I need to know uh, we have about 10 or 12 people that have already responded to this and are jumping into this program. Um, I need to know by the 20th, by December 20th, if you're interested in this. So, if you are interested, we've put this uh, in our church social media. I've announced this at our anniversary gathering in October, and today I'm making one big public push for this. If you're interested in being part of this program, uh, please speak to me. There is a very small fee for this, it's $50 for the year. I've done leadership development programs uh, that have cost into the thousands of dollars. So this $50 just helps us get some additional help to oversee the program, okay? But our church is investing way more into this than that $50. Uh, This is to make sure that you're also invested in it. So if you're interested in this, please let me know today. uh, Or, well, I should say, let me know by the 20th. I need to know by December 20th, which is five days from now, who's going to be in on this. I think we have 10 or 12 people already signed up, so I'm excited for that. If we get 10 or 12 people to grow in their leadership gifts over the next year, that's a great win for a church like us, uh, for a church our size. So, okay, Uh, that's all. I just wanted to give a plug for that. If you have questions, I'd be happy to speak to you in person. Glenn Miller, can I put you on the spot? You're an elder, so I can do this. Would you mind praying for the sermon? Okay amen see that's leadership development you just call on someone without any notice and they're able to pray all right okay i want to start off i'm going to need a little bit of uh crowd participation this morning but listen these questions are very easy okay this isn't like uh you know how many uh how many uh never mind (laughs) I had a joke, when I was like, no, I need to keep employment. So, um, all right. Uh, here's the first question I want to ask. What is this? What A church. Okay, great. See, this is easy, right? This is not hard. That's a church. That's actually the church that I was baptized in when I was 12 years old. I needed a picture of something that looked obviously like a church, and this is the most churchy-looking church I could think of, right? All right. This is a church. So let me ask a follow-up question. What types of things might happen here in this facility? What types of things might happen? Worship, okay, good. See, this is easy, right? Preaching, who said preaching? Okay, Susan, right. Praying, wow, you guys know your church stuff. All right, good. Teaching, Bible study, what else? Repentance. And what type of events might take place in a fellowship? Weddings, yeah. But, wow. I've never heard such excitement about funerals. Yikes. Potluck dinners. Okay, that's where the excitement should be, not funerals, but okay. Although they often are one and the same, I guess. Uh, now, how do you know this is a church? I mean, what, what tips you off that this is a church? There's a sign? Alright, Diana, we get it. You know what a church is. My goodness. look You're so hyped up about this. There's a sign. Uh, I heard windows. Bell tower. bell tower. My grandfather used to ring the bell in the bell tower. I was baptized. My grandmother and grandfather, were. their funerals were here and my aunt was married here. My parents were married here, I think. So that's like our family church. Um, what else? Cross. There's crosses. There's a steeple. Okay. Red door, right? That's, that just goes to show churches should have red doors. Now um, That's good. You guys obviously get church, okay? What's this? The answer is on there. Herod's Herod's Temple, okay? It's a temple. Now, really quickly, and some of you may already know this, but for those that don't, Solomon's Temple and Herod's Temple are not exactly the same thing. Okay, Solomon's Temple was built by Solomon. Solomon. Well, David designed it. David was Solomon's father. David had a vision, I want to build this magnificent temple for God. And God said, well, David, I like that idea, but your hands are covered in blood because of your violence, so we're going to have your son build it. So Solomon actually built the temple, but because Israel went astray, the temple was eventually destroyed. And then the temple was rebuilt by Herod. So what's interesting about this is the, the original temple, which was an was overflow of David's love for God, and it was built by Solomon in, with wisdom, and uh, it was excellent. That thing that was dedip- dedicated to God was eventually destroyed uh, by enemy nations and then rebuilt by a non-Jewish king, and it did not stand up to the same purpose of Solomon's temple now it's all it's essentially the same dimensions it's based on Herod's uh, sorry Herod's temple is based on Solomon's temple it was built for the Jewish people it's basically a replacement okay this is the temple that Jesus would have walked into and flipped over the money changers tables this is the temple where Jesus would have been tried before he was crucified So, Solomon's temple had been destroyed before the days of Jesus. This temple was destroyed in AD 70, I believe. So, Jesus actually in Matthew 24 says, I tell you, it won't be very long before all the stones of this temple have been toppled over. And he got in a lot of trouble for saying that, but he was actually right because it was within a generation. Some of the people that heard him say that saw it torn down. And so he prophesied that about 40 years in advance. So, what might people do at the temple? Just like a church, we know what people do at a church. What are the types of things people might do at, a t- at the temple, Herod's temple? Worship, bring offerings for sacrifices, eat, teaching. receive teaching. They would also bring their little boys. When a little boy was born, he would be brought here eight days when he was eight days old to be circumcised. That did not happen. I mean, obviously there weren't hospitals at the time and it wasn't happening immediately. So he would have been, a little boy would have been brought here at eight days old and circumcised and given a name. In fact, in Luke chapter two, Jesus was brought to this temple, circumcised and received his name from his parents. So circumcision took place in this temple and for the Jewish people, circumcision had a far different meaning than it does for us right now. So I think probably everyone here knows what circumcision is, but for those that don't, I'm going to give a really brief, quick uh, explanation. It's the removal of the foreskin of the penis. There, I said penis from the pulpit, uh, of uh, of of a man. Okay. Uh, generally, it's for it's done to infants, but sometimes uh, adults have it done as well. This was such a significant thing in the life of Israel. They actually looked down on people that were not. That, that they looked down on men that had not been circumcised. So for them, it was not just a medical issue. Uh, for them, it was not just a hygiene issue. For them, it was a spiritual issue. It was a sign of their covenant with God. It goes all the way back to Abraham. They kind of puffed them, their chests out. Like, huh. And they would look down on and even ridicule other nations and other ethnicities that did not practice circumcision. And this temple is a representation of that perspective. The temple also was beautiful on the inside. Uh, If you were paying attention during our uh, Life of David series when we talked about the temple being built, the temple was just decorated. It was all garden and angel motif. Okay? It was just pomegranates and palms and, and uh, flowers and, and things. That's what they carved into the wood, and then they overlaid the wood with gold. And then they put angels, seraphim and uh, cherubim, and over, on the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the motif of the, of the temple was essentially heaven. It's angels, it's a garden, it's gold. And the temple to them was heaven on earth. It was almost, I hate this word, but I can't think of a better word. It was almost like a portal of heaven on earth. And so when they went into the temple, they felt like they were more connected to heaven. Also interesting, even though Israel believed that God was everywhere, they went here to worship him. This is the place they went to worship an omnipresent God. Now, for those that could not get to the temple, because you know the Jewish people all used to live in the tightly compacted, but when they started getting into battles and stuff with other nations, they would get you know, carried away or taken away, and so they started to spread out. Not everyone could get to the temple, and this happened between the Old and New Testaments when we don't have any scripture. That's when all of a sudden you see synagogues popping up, little local houses of worship that were not the temple, but it was a place for the Jewish people to congregate and share their culture and share their beliefs. Now, this, this temple... I know the temple thing, I know sometimes that can get like, why are we talking about this? This is really, you got to understand the temple to understand both the Old and New Testaments. This temple, this is the actual interior of the temple here. This wall, see this wall? This wall, no non-Jewish person was allowed to pass through. There were actually signs in other languages, Latin and Greek, saying, any non-Jew that enters will be killed. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine if I had a sign on the front of the church in another language saying anyone that comes in of a different ethnicity will be asked to leave or killed? How would that come across to you? Not very welcoming. welcoming. There's a word I'm looking for. If I had a sign in another language that said a different ethnicity came in, they would be killed. That would come across as racist, wouldn't it? So they actually had signs in Greek and in Latin saying, essentially, not welcome. Jews only is the idea. Now, if you were Jewish, you could go through this gate, but this wall kept you out. You could go through this gate if you were Jewish. If you were a woman, you had to stop here. Only men could go through this gate. Which means that no non-Jewish person ever went into the holy place. It means that no woman ever went into the holy place. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but for hundreds of years in the temple's existence, no Gentile ever set foot where God's manifest presence was. No woman ever set foot where God's manifest presence was. They blocked them out. They kept them out. They weren't permitted to go in. How does that come across? Kind of sexist, right? Now, the Apostle Paul got in trouble in Acts 21. This, uh, the temple was segregated, to put it in clear terms. The temple was segregated. In Acts chapter 21, I want you to see what happens to Paul. Oh, the slide's not up. Okay, that's all right, because I have it in my Bible. I'm going to read in Acts 21 this story of Paul when he got in trouble at the temple. This is Acts 21, verses 27 through 29. When the seven days of a fast were almost over, the Jewish people from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd, and they laid hands on Paul. Not laid hands on Paul like, let's pray for him. In in Philly translation, we gripped him up. They cried out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law into this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks, non-Jewish people. He's even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen a man named Trophimus from Ephesus in the city with Paul, and they supposed that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple. This is why Paul ends up in prison at the end of his life. If you know a little bit about Paul, he wrote a lot of his letters from prison. Why was Paul in prison? Was he shoplifting? Did he kill someone? This is why Paul's in prison in Acts 21. He was in prison because he took a non-Jewish person into the temple. That's why he got locked up. He caught a case for doing that. All right, And the man that he brought into the temple was named Trophimus. And I don't know if you caught, where was Trophimus from? Ephesus. Paul took this non-Jewish guy from Ephesus. And he's like, yeah, I know this sign says you'll be killed, but you're with me. I don't know what Trophimus is like. <laughs> you know, but they, they brought, he brought Trophimus in, and Paul ended up getting beat and imprisoned. And when Paul was in prison for bringing a non-Jewish Ephesian into the temple, you know what book he wrote? Ephesus. Ephesians, I should say. He wrote Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is written to the friends and family and church members of the guy that Paul brought behind the wall of the temple. Do you understand why this is significant? So... We're going to pick up in Ephesians 2. This is where we've left off uh, from previous weeks. And this is what Paul, I, he's, he's directly addressing why he's in prison now. Okay? He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, Gentile just means non-Jewish person. So he's talking about another ethnicity, another race. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Enmity just means hatred. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So I want to go through this section by section here. There's three things that Paul's communicating to the Ephesians. And again, I want to remind you, these Ephesians are friends and family and church members of Trophimus, who Paul brought into the temple. And Paul's in prison. Paul is essentially writing a prison epistle because he integrated the temple. In college, I had to read something called A Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King Jr. It was a letter he wrote from prison because of his work uh, dealing with uh, racism in the United States. This feels like that to me. Now, obviously, Paul wrote his letter first. Martin Luther King Jr. was following Paul's example, not the other way around, okay? But this is essentially Paul's letter from an Ephesian jail. I'm writing a letter from prison about a specific action I took To integrate the temple. Paul reminds the Gentiles that they used to be separate. Now, I want to remind, you know, that that seems like it could be rude. Paul's like, remember when uh, you weren't allowed here? But remember the position Paul's in. He's now suffering on their behalf. He's actually on their side. But he is, he's putting things in historical context. And he's addressing the Ephesian church, which is mostly non-Jewish. And he says, uh, remember that you... You Gentiles who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Listen, that's basically, calling people the uncircumcision is essentially a slur. It's basically a racial slur. He's like, remember how people used to say that? And and he says, by the so-called circumcision. So Paul's even understanding, like, listen, it was wrong for this to ever have been done. But remember when people used to call you names based on your race? And he goes on and he says, uh, it's performed by the flesh, by human hands. So he's even, it's, we're talking about something that has to do with your body. You know, like, you're, you're, remember that you were at that time, you were separate from Christ. He's reminding them of their position with Jesus. You were separate from Jesus. You are excluded from Israel. You were strangers. I mean, think, look at these words. Excluded, separate, strangers. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. Paul's reminding them, of their state before Jesus, before they came to Christ. When it was just Christless religion and culture, there was separation, alienation, division, segregation. There was no hope. So Paul's putting this in context, and then he goes on to tell them about Jesus and what Jesus accomplishes. But now in Christ Jesus, those who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When he says, you were far off, what's he referring to? Well, they were literally far off, right? They were not even in the temple. Those who were outside of the temple, far off, have now been brought near to the holy of holies. They've brought, been brought into the holy place. Uh, Jesus is their peace. Peace is not, for Paul, not just a concept or a feeling, it is a person. That their peace comes through the person of Jesus. Their peace doesn't come through a process, their peace doesn't come through uh, some sort of emotional state, but they receive pre- peace through Jesus. Uh, Jesus makes both groups into one. Now, you know, the way that Paul and his Jewish counterparts would have seen the world is very different from the way we would see the world. Because when I try to think of the different ethnic groups and races, I can't list them all. I mean, I try to go alphabetically, you know, African American, Asian, uh, his, you know, Hispanic, uh, Arab, Jewish, white. And then I, like, I'm like, I think I've covered a lot, but I, I know there's more. Um, they just saw the world as Jewish and non-Jewish. They didn't care if you were Greek, Italian, African, Japanese. Like, if you weren't Jewish, you were just outside. So when Paul is talking about the two becoming one, he's saying Jewish and non-Jewish are now one in Jesus. Now for us, there would be more than just two types of ethnicity. But whether you see it as five or ten or a hundred, all are equal and one in Jesus. He says that Jesus broke down the dividing wall. Now, what wall are we talking about here? That wall of the temple. Now, Jesus didn't physically tear down the wall outside of the temple, although he did prophesy that it would be torn down, and it was eventually torn down. But Jesus broke down the metaphorical wall that was keeping Gentiles and Jewish people from having a relationship with one another in Jesus. He tore that down. He also abolished the enmity in verse uh, 15 and 16. He says it twice actually, he refers to it. He abolished all the hatred that existed between the two groups. There was hatred between those two groups and they had to coexist. Uh, They lived in the same cities, they lived in the same places, they got food at the same places, they worked together, and there was hatred and enmity that existed. And Jesus provided access to the Father Jesus actually is the greatest uh, proponent for racial reconciliation that the world has ever seen. And he paid a price for it. Uh, the reason that Jesus had a ministry that advocated for racial reconciliation is because racism is a sin. It's not uh, a difference of opinion, <laughs> it's not a valid political view, it's a sin. And if Jesus came to destroy sin, then one of those sins that he came to destroy is racism. And, and a lot of racism is founded on what's called the myth of racial superiority. It's just the idea that one race is superior to another race. I mean, that's, that's not the whole of racism, but it's really foundational. You almost can't have racism without believing that someone is better than someone else due to their ethnicity. And Jesus came to destroy racism. He came to destroy racial superiority. And we actually see, we see in the minds of the people here, this concept of racial superiority where one group is better than another group. And Jesus comes to confront that and deal with it. Uh, Jesus teaches us what biblical racial reconciliation looks like. And I just wanna give two quick thoughts on biblical racial reconciliation. Uh, The first thought is, not all racial reconciliation is biblical. The world really, it seems like right now, really is eager for racial reconciliation, but they're not trying to achieve it through Jesus. And I just don't think that you can achieve it aside from Jesus. So the Bible makes it clear that all reconciliation happens through Jesus. And what that I think, indicates to me is if we leave it up to the world to figure out how to make all the ethnic groups coexist in peace, I just don't think they're going to accomplish it. Listen, they never have. We never have, right? So the hope now then is if it happens in Jesus, then that the church should be leading the way in this area. I mean, I hope this doesn't sound too pessimistic, but this is how I feel. I don't think the world is ever gonna figure out how to deal with racism, but the church can. I think there's always gonna be racism in the world, but there does not have to be racism in the church. In fact, there should not be racism in the church. The church needs to figure this out because the church has everything it needs to figure this out. The world does not have everything it needs to figure this out. So I hope it gets better in the world, and I hope that as the church takes its place, and plays its role that things spill out into culture and things get better. But I don't have a lot of I don't have a lot of hope for the government, or the police department, or some business, or some you know good speaker to come and like figure this out for us. It has to be. It has to be achieved through Jesus. And so those of us that are followers of Jesus, and I'm you know banking on that's everybody in the room right now. those, those of us that are followers of Jesus should be practicing these principles inside the church, but also outside of the church. We should be modeling a ministry of reconciliations, it says in Corinthians, that we have a ministry of reconciliation. Second thought thought on biblical racial reconciliation is it is essential as a Christian to prioritize our identity in Christ above our racial identity. I'm saying prioritize because I would never ask anyone nor should we ever ask anyone to be colorblind and pretend that there is no difference between ethnic groups and cultures. There is. There are differences and those differences we don't want to ignore them. We celebrate and honor them. Some of I mean they can show us beautiful things about God and beautiful things about the kingdom. So I don't want us to adopt a colorblind mentality We're like, oh, I don't see color. (laughs) I don't know that that's, I don't know, is that even real? I don't don't know that that's even real. But uh, I think the better thing to do is to say, listen, I am a Christian first and foremost. That is my primary identity, but I do have a legitimate and valid ethnic identity as well. And I am informed about how that both complements and at times contradicts my Christian identity. Okay? And I'm going to bring everything underneath my commitment to Jesus. I am a, so I'll just speak for myself. I am a Christian first before I am a white man. Now, I am a white man, and I'm not hiding that and trying to deny it, but I'm a Christian first. So where my whiteness is in contrast with. Jesus, I have to repent of that and bring it underneath my commitment to Jesus. Does that make sense? So I won't tell you what to do. I'm telling you what I'm going to do. Okay? So those are some, I think, helpful perspectives on uh, being ministers of reconciliation and seeing biblical racial reconciliation. Now, after Jesus accomplishes all of this, he does something. He reconciles both to God But this is what Jesus begins now. And remember, we're talking about what happens in the temple, right? So keep the temple in mind here. uh, He says to these non-Jewish people, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. You're of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So now he's painting for them a brand new picture of the temple. He showed them already how racist the old temple was. And he's saying now Jesus is building a new holy temple and it's built out of people. It's a spiritual temple. It's built out of living stones. So it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. So there's so much in this passage about this holy temple that Jesus is building and I wanna try to cover all that. First, the holy temple that Jesus is building is being built out of living stones, which means it is not a physical building, but it is a people. It's a group of people who are built out of living stones, and you are one of those living stones. Now, every day when I go home, I see this. One of those, that that brick wall is my front wall, and then the stone wall is my neighbor's front wall. And I see this contrast between a brick wall and a stone wall. See how uniform the brick wall is? Everything's the same shape, the same color, the same size. It looks nice. See the stone wall? No two stones are the same shape. No two stones are the same size. They have different colors. Listen, it's easier to build with brick, but it's stronger to build with stone. And Jesus is building this holy temple with living stones that are different sizes, different shapes, different colors, and it's stronger. Now, there are community organizations, churches, neighborhoods that are built like brick. Everyone's the same. Same race, same socioeconomic status, same age. Man, you can build fast that way. There's a reason people build with brick, guys. It's faster, it's cheaper, it's easier, but it's man-made. You can build a church that way, you can build a neighborhood that way, you can build a uh, club that way. You can't build a church that way. The church has to be, Jesus is building his church with stone, which means there's going to be different sizes and shapes. And those stones are going to be coming from different places even. It, but it is going to be stronger. It might take longer. It might be more difficult, but it's going to be stronger in the long run. And actually, I kind of think that's better looking, personally. I just think it's cool. I don't know. I'm not a millennial, so I don't know what cool things look like. But <laughs> uh, not only is Jesus building this temple, he tells us about this temple. He says that the apostles and prophets are the foundation, having built, been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, there is, there is another, there's another passage in the Bible that says Jesus is the foundation, but this passage says that the apostles and the prophets are the foundations. That's referring to both Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, but I believe it's referring to the continuation of apostolic and prophetic ministry to lay the foundation of the church. So that as the church expands worldwide, it is modern day apostles and modern day prophets who are creating the foundation for the church. And Jesus is using apostles and prophets and always has used apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church. So where's Jesus? If the apostles and prophets are the foundation, where is Jesus? Verse 20, Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is significant in any building. If you go out in our building, you'll find right in the corner, pretty much behind Andrew's head, there's a cornerstone that has the year that this sanctuary was built, 1931. What is the purpose of a cornerstone? It's not just decorative, it's not to stamp the year on or anything like that. The cornerstone is actually the stone, the first stone that is set, and every other stone is set in relation to the cornerstone. So I'll use my Bible as an example. If I set the Bible, if I set a stone like this, it, every other stone has to go in a straight line based on the cornerstone. Does that make sense? So the first stone that is set orients the rest of the stones that are going to be used for that building. So when they set this cornerstone out here on the corner, they put that first and they said, okay, now we're going to hook up a little line a little string, we're going to run it, and that's going to help us know how we keep a straight line. Jesus is the stone that orients and keeps the rest of us in a straight line. Without the cornerstone, you would have a crooked, wavy wall or a wall of different heights. It wouldn't be straight. It wouldn't be orderly. It wouldn't be in line. So Jesus is the cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, and Jesus has been building this holy temple since. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the first stone to be laid, and the stone that determines the placement of the foundation of all other subsequent stones. So once Jesus has built this holy temple, right? I mean, he's the cornerstone. Apostles and prophets are the foundation. We're the living stones. So who's the inhabitant? It says in verse 22, it is a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the inhabitant of this temple that Jesus is building. Now, in this passage, (laughs) we see racial superiority, racial slurs, and racial segregation. I don't know if you guys knew that's in the Bible. But this is is stuff that Jesus has been confronting before the United States, before 2015, before the Civil Rights Movement, before slavery and the Civil War. Jesus has been dealing with segregation, racial slurs, and racial superiority, it was present in his day. And he and Paul were teaching the church how to confront it. Racism, segregation, racial superiority are all things that the church has to confront. And before the church confronts it in the culture, the church has to reject it in the body. The picture I got as I was um, preparing this week was that the body of Christ has some vomiting that it needs to do. That there are things that the body of Christ, the church, has accepted, has let in, that are actually poisonous. And if any of you, you know, if your little kids or whatever has ever taken in poison, you want to get them to throw up, right? Sometimes, God made our body to vomit to get poisonous stuff out. And I I kind of feel like the church in America I'll just talk about the church in America although I don't think it's limited to America. We got to vomit some stuff out. We've been letting this poisonous stuff in us for too long and we need to just reject it. Get it out of our system because it is making us sick. And and you know it's not the job of your toes and your fingers and your elbows and your knees To get the poison out. It's the job of your stomach. Today, I would like to be just a little part of the intestines of the church. And I would like us to just reject racism, reject racial superiority, reject segregation, and reject all of those things. We're a little group. I don't know if by ourselves we can change the whole tide of the church in the United States, but we can definitely make a difference here in our own church and in our own community. And of course, we need thousands of churches to take that approach and reject this kind of stuff. But we don't have authority for thousands of churches. We have authority for our own church. So what I would like to do, this is how I want to close. I want to close in prayer, but I want to ask some of you to pray out. Let's reject racism. Let's reject segregation. Let's, this is stuff that Jesus dealt with in the cross. This isn't some hot-button political issue that's just big today, because Jesus dealt with it 2,000 years ago on a different continent, in a different context. This is part of the screwed up, fallen human condition that Jesus came to fix. This is a gospel issue, not a political issue. This is a biblical issue, not just a social issue. And so if we're going to be biblical, we have to reject this. So I'm just going to ask a few of you, whoever are comfortable, whoever feel like the Lord's giving you something to pray, let's just, we can pray short prayers rejecting this saying, listen, not here. It is not going to be allowed here. It's not going to be permitted here. If some of you will pray on behalf of our church, I'll wrap up when we've covered everything that we need to cover. I feel like the Lord's given us one strategy for how to do this as a church, how to live as a diverse church. And it just centers around the word honor. Just honor everybody. You know, it, I think it's too much to ask for everybody to understand every subtle nuance of every culture. I mean, maybe it's not, but it's too much to ask of me. I'm too simple for that. But if you can honor everybody, if you can appreciate everybody and celebrate everybody, then even if you don't know everything about them, you can still not just coexist, but love each other. So I I wanna send us out with this concept, just let's honor everybody. You know, every ethnicity, every race, genders, both genders, um, you know, age, socioeconomic, all that stuff. And as I conclude, you can help me uh, begin this by repeating this after me. This is an important pronouncement for our church. Kevin and Rachel are normal. <laughs> Amen. You're dismissed. All right, all right. You're a scientist. All right. In, uh, in nine minutes, we have a congregational meeting right here, so you have a little bit of time if you want to use the restroom or get a snack, but let's meet right back here in about nine minutes.